hello. Hello. Hey, we're back. Um, I don't. Has it been like a couple of weeks? No. I don't know. It's not. It's been a month. No. Anyway, it's been a month. It hasn't been a month. Three it's, weeks tops. This is the first one we've done this month, even though the month's only five days in. Uh, I gotta take that click track out. I hate that. Um, I can't even hear. I'm in a do a doo wop mode. A little shorty doo wop. <laughs> um. So yeah, this is the we we've been going back and we've been <laughs> ping ponging back and forth on which which record we're gonna do. We're gonna do Freedom of Choice by Devo. We're gonna do Joshua Tree, and we're definitely gonna do Rain and Blood coming up soon. But this, how about we take it back? Yeah. So this time we're gonna go with uh, Master Little Angel. Eyes. <laughs> We're going to do Big and Joe Turner's uh, Flip Flop and Fly. Just the one record, one song, and just that's it. Uh, no, we're going to do Master of Puppets by Metallica. Or that's what this, this particular um, joint is going to be about. Um, huge record for me in particular. It's, it's neck and neck with Rain and Blood for me. It is, for me, it's a benchmark of... Uh, how to how to record a heavy record like this? How to, how to get heavy metal recorded? The sound engineering, um, the way they mixed it, everything just is like to me. It's a benchmark for what albums should sound like in this genre of music. I mean, probably can be applied to other genres of music as well. But um, it was a huge thing. That came out in 1986, so it was released. Yeah, 1986. Yeah, released uh, March 3rd, 1986, on Electra Records. This was their third album, but their first major label uh, debut. Um, it was produced by Fleming Rasmussen, um, and I guess they were like after they had recorded. Kill 'em all and ride the lightning. They were trying to find a room that they were happy with, and they ended up going to Denmark to Sweet Silence Studios because they were fussy about the acoustics of the rooms, according to you know information that I've seen. Um, this was certified six times platinum, and an interesting thing that I never knew is it's the first heavy metal album that was included in Library of Congress's preservation in the National Recording Registry. I don't even know what the National Recording Registry is, but it seems like a big deal since it's Library of Congress. So this album is filed away in the Library of Congress's, you know, other musics alongside of, like, major, you know, milestones of probably a lot of folk and early grassroots music and anything major, huge American music. Well, that, that probably means that they finally had to acknowledge that like heavy metal was a genre that was selling records. I don't even know either. I know this album was big like almost instantly when it came out, but I don't think that I mean how long did it take to turn gold and platinum and all that? I don't know how long I don't know the facts on that. I know it spent something like 72 weeks in the Billboard top 100. So I don't know I don't know what the highest point that it ever made on Billboard. But it spent a pretty, you know, over a year uh, registering in the top. So maybe within a year, probably they climbed. Mm. You know, I don't, I don't know the facts, but um, 
another interesting note on just talking about the production and 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 what have you is that they had actually reached out to Getty Lee of Rush to produce this record, which is interesting because you don't think of I mean I guess you do think of Rush when you think of this kind of music like you know mixing and mixing and matching the intensity of like heavy metal Rush is a little bit more technical but this album is very technical if you think about it and it, you know I've listened to I've I've had it on vinyl since it's released I never had it on tape I never owned the CD copy of it but now I'm listening to it on the streaming services. So <clears throat> I was listening to it like the past couple weeks. And one thing that I'm, that I'm noticing is the clarity and the separation of the mix is so spot on. Like everyone is clear. There's nobody, you know, there's nothing muddied in this. There's no muddled parts. The bass is super clear. Both guitars are super clear. His voice is super clear. The drumming is just like... It's all perfectly, you know, mixed as far as I can hear. Um, and that's just listening to it lately on the streaming services. Like I said, I've never heard a CD version of it or that I can recall because I've always had this on, on, a, on a record. And I'm guessing it was, it was produced and mixed for record, you know, mastered for record pressing. Well, yeah, it was 1986. I mean, it yeah. wasn't. I don't even think CDs were widespread yet. I um, think that yeah, they were just barely. I don't. I don't even. You know what I was, was thinking about the other day? Like I couldn't think of what was the first CD I ever bought. And then was it? I know what you think. One was I it bought. Nine Inch Nails? And we talked about that before, right? I don't know if it was that. No, because you would have to have bought because I was already in high school then. The first CD I bought, I was still in junior high. I bought a Jimi Hendrix uh, experience, like, motion picture soundtrack. Boot, it was like a bootleg live CD. I remember getting it. Remember that? There used to be a shop. You know where the Penguins is? And now it's a Dairy Queen. Yeah. There used to be a record store in there. That was Sam Goody. But that's, yeah, that's when it moved outside of the mall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um... I remember that's where I bought some well, of that my was, CDs. That was the Sam Goody. It didn't move out of the mall. The mall was still Licorice Pizza. Sam Goody. Not by then, no way. No, I'm saying is the, the, the way that it went was Sam Goody opened the outside one first. Because I remember buying um, 12-inch records at that, at that location. Then Sam Goody moved into the mall. Because I, I used to shop at the one by Penguins hmm. when I was still going to school. And then I worked at the one inside the mall after I had already left school. So it was, it was the other way around. It was Licorice Pizza. Licorice Pizza closed. Sam Goody was out over here on the outside. And then they moved back into the mall. That's when I worked for them, when they were inside hmm. the mall. Yeah. Remember Federation Group? That store was crazy. Oh, with that crazy commercial guy. It was Shiloh Stevens. And he would like <laughs> blow up like like uh and he was big, great big stereo systems and he was there at that location one time. I don't know if he was shooting something, but I remember he was at that location one time. Mis the Mr. what they call him? Was he Mr. Mr. Fred Rated. Fred Rated, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. it was the Federated group. Which was kind of like what, like a Best Buy, right? Like yeah, electronics, more but they had geared CDs. towards uh, home stereos because I mean that was huge back then. Yeah, remember all the like everything used to be like stainless steel and it was like just this big grand like like piece of art in your home. Yeah, 
and um, there was like the there was a mixer, and there was all these separate components, and then they started getting into the rack systems, and then the very top had the turntable. Underneath, you had a section where you can put. Oh, you had the records. The Fisher. Dad had the Fisher one. Mm-hmm. It was like turntable with the magnet. Yeah, it was like turntable, dual cassette deck, equalizer, equalizer, preamp, and then the main amp on the bottom. And then you could put your records underneath yeah, like all a that, little, like a little wire. And rack. it rolled giant house speakers. <coughs> yeah. Um, but um, no, that store. I think that store sold vinyl too. But they had a small amount and it was videos. Crazy big store, yeah. though. And then they started renting videos. Which that's now that's not the that's not what the guitar center is it now. Is. Oh, it is. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. So it's the same as the same size as what the guitar yeah. center is. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I remember that store, and I remember that other store. It was like, it was like a fancy big screen TV store inside mm-hmm. the mall where mom and dad bought their first big video screen, concepts. Video concepts, and they had mm-hmm. the first movies you can buy. On Betamax, like a hundred dollars for a for a movie, and before rentals were before anybody rented videos, you can buy the movie, and it was like Star Wars, the first Star Wars, or I don't even know if the first Star Wars was ever printed on that to purchase right away, but I don't think so for years. But there was a few movies that were huge, like ET and Indiana Jones, Mm -hmm. and we went to go that sort of like. Begging for mom and dad to buy, it's like eighty fucking dollars for a cassette copy, a shitty Betamax copy. Actually, the Betamax was better quality than the VHS. Mm-hmm. But we never ended up getting the Betamax. We got the VHS instead. The top, the like, remember the top lid? You remember um, around this time though, like nineteen eighty six. I remember there was. It was like. Before CDs came out, it was all about DAT tapes, and it was about those metal... Remember those? It was like super high-quality tape. Oh, it even was, those tapes cost more like than a regular yeah. cassette tape. The, the, well, they had the metal and then the, the ceramic particle for where the heads touched on the tape deck. Mm-hmm. So when you put it in the tape deck, so you buy like an NAD tape deck or a Nakamichi or whatever. And I never liked them. Like to and me, those sounded... It just sounded like highs. It was just all tinny. It was hissy. Everything hissed, and it was like only. But it was more. It was made for people who listen to classical music, and but those cost. Yeah. Oh yeah. And they were heavy, yeah. and they were like. But I remember, like around this time, it was, it was vinyl cassette, and then like super cassette or whatever you want to call it. The high quality audio stuff, yeah, um, and the DAT stuff. But for this, I. I I bought this, I never owned, I had a kill em all tape, and I had listened to friends' copies of, uh, why am I blanking on the Ride second? the Lightning? Ride the Lightning. And then I think I had a tape of Ride the Lightning. I don't think I remember I ever, you bought the vinyl later. Later, yeah. But the first record that I bought of theirs was, was Master of Puppets. Mm-hmm. Best records, the go-to shop back in the day. Can you buy it there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but it had best records, and I just devoured this album. I mean, th- this was the album where I wanted to be—I wanted to play drums. I was just like obsessed with the drumming on this record, and the this was about. I mean, it's funny because we went to the Dodger game last night, and mom, we were talking about Lola getting lost in the crowd because there's these huge crowds, and we were just super vigilant about keeping eye on, eye on her. And mom brought up this thing about you. 
having to call the security and the cops at the mall when you were dropped off at organ lessons. Mm. And I remember because I was begging mom and dad to give me drums, I wanted, I wanted to play drums because of this, this album. And I used to play with uh, hanger, <laughs> plastic hangers mm-hmm. on things. And Tupperware. And mom and dad were like, no, I'm not getting any drums. And I, don't, I think I did have the blue guitar at this point, the electric mm-hmm. guitar. And I was like begging for drums. They're like, no, I'm not getting drums. And then you wanted to play organ. And so they bought you an organ and made me go to organ lessons. And I was so pissed because I was like... You didn't want to do organ lessons anymore, and I was stuck doing organ lessons when you were just like, nah, I ain't doing this no more. <laughs> I should say I never even wanted to. But they thought you did, and they bought you an organ. We had a damn organ in that. Who? Grandma's the one that bought it. But she thought you wanted it. All I wanted to do was walk in there and play it. Yeah, and, and then, then we went in there. Next thing you know. The salesman <laughs> starts talking, and then we come home with it. And the next thing you know. You're, I wrote some songs on that. Though. You're standing there with a bunch of cops looking for mom because she was a few minutes late to pick mm-hmm. you up. Um, but anyway, yeah, this this was uh, so I was 15, making you about 10. So what was that fifth grade for you? Really? Yeah. Man, that's crazy. You were about 10. That was the year of that big earthquake. 1986. 86. No. Mm-hmm. Whittier. Yep. No. Yeah. That was the next year. No. Pretty sure. I remember being in drafting class during that earthquake. I don't remember. I thought it was. I always thought it was 86. Yeah, it could have been. Um, we could look it up, but I'm not going to. I'm looking at this list of other records that came out. Well, it this was, is the year of Rain and Blood. It was um, ACDC Who Made Who soundtrack to Maximum Overdrive. Remember that horrible movie about the truck? Yep. It was like a Stephen King movie. Emilio Estevez was in it. Right, right, right. It was awful. It was a bad record, too. Bad Brains, Eye Against Eye. That's funny. Beowulf's first record. Black and Blue. Black Sabbath. Black and Blue Rolling Stones? No, Black and Blue the band. Oh, the band. That's like the Tommy Thayer is the guitar player for Kiss. Oh, oh, oh. And I think Gene Simmons produced their stuff. Um what else? Cinderella. But yeah, I remember there was like a lot of the glam stuff. Like Cinderella, Ozzy, Ultimate Sin came out. So the Dark Angel. Um, Dark Angel was, came out in 86? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So it was like a big year for metal, but also big, like like small metal, like Exciter, Fastway, Europe, Flotsam and Jetsam. Uh, Which is where they took... Jason Jason Newstead yeah. from he was in Flotsam and Jetsam, and so this record gets released on Mart in March, and only a few months later is when Cliff Burton dies in the bus accident. He died of he died in September of the same year. They were on they were opening for Ozzy too for Ozzy yeah they were on the Ultimate Century. Jesus Priest puts out Turbo Iron Maiden put out Somewhere in Time Keel um, Creator Crocus. Lizzie Borden, London, Loudness. So, like... Lizzie Borden. Oh, and Megadeth puts out Peace Cells, which is... That's that's right. kind of their biggest record, too. So, Megadeth is... So, th- this, is the, this is funny, because... I can't remember which song on Ride the Lightning that Dave Mustaine wrote, but he wrote uh, Mechanics, which is the Four Horsemen, on... 
on uh, Kill 'Em All. And there was another song. It might have been Creeping Death. I cannot remember. But there was another song on Ride the Lightning that Dave Mustaine wrote. So this is the breakaway. This is where Metallica is free and clear of Dave Mustaine. There's nothing on this record that he wrote. And this is also the year that he puts out his biggest record. I think Peace Cells is the biggest record they have. I think so, too. Yeah. Um, But they put it, yeah, it's like it came out the same time. Um, But it seemed like, uh, I mean, I don't know, listening to the first two records, like, in a way, maybe slightly, like, with with slight production and and songwriting, but Ride the Lightning's kind of like a, like a, Kind of like a book bookend record for um, for this for this record, Master Puppets. Kind of sounds like that, um, just because it has that intensity. Like even the first song, "Fire with Fire" on Ride the Lightning, is like battery. Like battery. I remember for the first time you brought it home and hearing that song was like, what is this? And it, it kind of opens so... the same way with that slow. Yeah, and then it just turns into almost this acoustic, crazy yeah. song that doesn't even really make any sense at all. And you know what the one thing so the one thing I noticed I want to I, I want to go back and talk about the 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 other major things that came out this year but for just a second um because a lot of it has to do with the way that I was interpreting going back to listen to this because when I was 15 listening to this I was attracted to the to the drive of all the songs like every song had a lot of marchingness to it. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there's a lot of war themes in here. Like, The Disposable Heroes is definitely, mm-hmm. like, a war song about soldiers that go to war. You know, he says, yeah. he's literally giving you the description of a soldier going to war. So, you were saying Somewhere in Time was... Wait, go back to that. You're talking about war theme. Like, so, like, Damage Incorporated, too, has that. Where it's like, dun, dun, dun. Yeah, it's all, dun, it's da, all da, very... Dun, 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 dun. It's all very marchy. Mm-hmm. And the diff, the thing, so when I was listening to this and I was like, yeah, you know, it's so weird because you can't, you can't really pinpoint the, you can't pinpoint, like there's, there's so many, there's so much things that they're pulling from that you can't pinpoint the one thing that makes this record different from a Peace Cells or a Somewhere in Time or even like a Rain in Blood, but the thing that I was hearing was that a lot of the stuff, and I, and I may be mistaken in using this technical term, but a lot of the signature of time, so it's like 220 beats per minute, a lot of these songs. Mm-hmm. So when you're listening to you know, the driving of the drum and then the, the power chord you know, rhythm guitar that's just keeping in same, uh-huh. the same you know, tempo as the drum, mm-hmm. but the way he's singing, he's almost talk singing like a punk rock mm-hmm. record would be doing. And he's not doing it in the same time because most punk rock records, they're trying to sing at the same pace as, as mm-hmm. the time signature. Yeah. So here you have like a double time signature, you know, a fast 220 beats per minute. But he's saying a line over every two, you know, mm-hmm. time, you know, lengths of time. So it's like he's singing in a single time signature while the music is double time. So it creates this weird, like, effect where you're just like, oh, I can, and everything's super clear. Like, you can hear. Well, he's also singing like. He's actually hitting real notes too. It's not just like like a punk rock singing is just like finding a cool sound for the voice and then just go. Except if you're talking about like Joey Ramone, he actually sings a, mo- a melody. 
but a lot of right, right, right. You think, you think about like Black Flag. That's there's no melody in that vocals. It's just about the attitude and just spitting out all this you as know, fast as you can venom. Yeah, but I think what you're saying that's what's making me think of like just looking at that list of other records that came out. Maybe the reason why this one was so like. You know how some records they just they just land right at the right time. Yeah. Like when we like we did Smashing Pumpkins, that was just kind of like this culmination of all these things, and then was almost like there was this platform that was just waiting for whatever was going to drop on it. This record's kind of like that, especially with it being acknowledged as the first heavy metal record. Obviously, there's heavy metal records that existed way before that. Number of the Beast was already out. Peace of Mind was already out. Um, Judas Priest is on Turbo, so that means Defenders of the Faith was out, Screaming for Vengeance, you know. Right. And those bands are getting huge. Like, they're playing big, big, like, arenas. But this, because, like, you're talking about, it's it's got fast tempos, but it also has, like, about, like, ballad songs on there, you know. The first half of, uh, is it, well, Orion's just an instrumental, but what's the song that's on here? It's Welcome Home Sanitarium. doesn't have that, like, that whole middle section where it's just, like, the guitar. Um, it slows down, and then it picks back up. Well, Sanitarium is slow to begin with. But then it picks up, like, It picks up the toward the end. But the one, I think the one, because I was just listening to this, is the title track, the Master of Puppets song. Yeah. It goes from a really fast, you know, it starts That's off. Like a prog rock song. It starts off fast. And then there's a middle, very, very sweet melodic breakdown in the middle. Almost like when I was listening to it, I was like, man, this sounds like if Randy Rhodes played this. It's, it has the... That's what I was thinking. So, I had to pause it, so, okay, we're back in. No, but, um, so yeah, like having that middle section, the breakdown, um, and you're talking about like Randy Rhodes, this is what's making me think of like the Ozzy Ultimate Sin album. I think on that one is maybe Jakey Lee's playing with them at that time. But like Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, some of the heavier stuff like uh, like what's it called? Uh, I think Possessed put a record out this year too. They're almost like a culmination of everything that's going on in one album. So it has like the metal kind of ballad ballad esque, you know, um compose composing. It has the heavy, hard hitting, you know, almost punk rock. It has a singer that can sing. It has shredding solos and it has amazing drums. So it's almost like you look at this list of releases any of the standout ones, you can kind of pick and choose and be like, that kind of exists in this record. Yeah, And definitely. that's probably why they just finally were like, you know what, heavy metal is a genre. This is the record that's going to kind of represent it. Because it's, it's never, you know, like, like, never mind the bollocks to a lot of people. Even when I was a kid, it was like, oh, that's, that's the first punk rock record. And it's like, it's not. It's just happened to land it's the, at that time. It's the flagship punk rock record. It's not yeah, the first. But it's you don't the think flagship one. Everything no, yeah. that's been building for years that these guys were clearly a part of. Yeah, and there was a, there, you know, I'm hearing in a lot of the different, rec- in a lot of different songs, especially because it's a very narrative album, you know, everything's like, like they had, you know, Welcome Home Sanitarium, they, they were inspired by the One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest book. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, there's a lot of literative um, references in this, on this record. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, Iron Maiden does that kind of stuff, but they they do it in like an operatic kind of like very theatrical way. Mm-hmm. And it's funny because when I was listening to this, I was thinking like this is like a Charles Bukowski version of storytelling, where it's just straight to the point. It's clear and concise. His he doesn't wander off vocally into you know like the way a Bruce Dickinson would yeah. or or an Ozzy. You know, like Ozzy's got a nice voice. And he, but he has to sing. Like James can speak and sing, kind of like that, I that kind of way. The music, though, it's like like the first two. The first record, it's just it's just riffs and and rec and and cool, you know, like metal. Um, the second one, it's well. The first one's like very. It's like thrash metal. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, this is faster than that one. It's just, but it's it's the context of it. Yeah. Um, the musicianship is just all about a, a riff, yeah. and then an attitude, a force. Ride the lightning. I think they're getting like, obviously, they could play their guitars better because this is to me this is like this is a guitar band. Um, not saying that the drums aren't great and the songwriting, but it's like, it's kind of like. Like when I think of guitar bands, I think of like like Iron Maiden. They got two dual guitar lead Judas players. Priest. Yeah, that are just tearing it up. And Judas Priest is like that too, and they definitely have those riffs. But it's almost like they they hit a plateau with like maybe Defenders of the Faith. Actually, maybe even earlier, Screaming for Vengeance, and it was almost like that's all we can do. Mm-hmm. And then they still keep making records. Iron Maiden keeps like like you know you listen to. From Number of the Beast, even their first two albums, they're they're shredding. Yeah. And then you listen to Number of the Beast, and it's like up to Annie. And then Peace of Mind is like a big leap. And then it's like um, Power Slave. It's just Seven these guitar song, yeah. gods. And then it's somewhere in time, even though that's kind of a little bit of a departure, the guitar work on there is still crazy. And to me, this is when they, like Metallica, comes into their own. Because even after this, Injustice for All, um, I think that's kind of their last good record. Um, and Justice for All has a couple of songs I like. I did. I wasn't. I didn't balk at that record. I wasn't as excited. I was. You know what? I was more excited and anticipation of that record because of this one. But when I listened to it, I was like, eh. Like you know what I mean? It wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was like. You can tell where they were going. Yeah. Before the, with the is it even is it called the Black Album? I think so. And then when that thing, that ruined this band for me. Like, you know, it ruined my attention for this band. You know band. what's weird, too? It's, a, it's almost like the price that these kinds of bands with these kinds of albums pay is it's the price of, like, the, the fame too quick, too soon, mm. and then how to follow it up. Because you think about, like, I was surprised looking at this list of, like, where Judas Priest was, where Iron Maiden was, where Ozzy Osbourne was. These are all like legendary acts, but they're also like like pioneers where they didn't just come on the scene and were like, "Oh my God, you you, you guys just dropped out of nowhere now you're huge." Because right. look what happened to like Guns and Roses. Guns and Roses, same thing. They put out their record and they were just like, "Where does this band came? Where did they come from?" They have all the elements that used to be what rock and roll is all about, and then they get put on this this stage and then it's like now you guys have to 
now it's up to you to take right. it. And then with all that pressure, they can't, you know. Um, I think Metallica lasted a little bit longer, but they, I think they fell under that blanket and had that pressure on them too. Just like with the Smashing Pumpkins, obviously Nirvana, yeah. you know, it's like you don't see, you see Mudhoney putting out record after record after record and didn't succumb to any of that because they didn't have to deal with any of that. Nobody even knows you know? who they are. Same thing with, <laughs> you know, but that's what's weird about yeah. it. Because, like, Judas Priest is huge, but they didn't get huge overnight. Metallica yeah, and kind of got big the other, quick. The other thing that I was hearing, because, like, um, it's funny because you said Possessed had put a record out this year, I think. And there was one song, I can't think, you know, I don't remember which one in this in this list of songs, but... There was a there was a section of one of the guitar solos that Kirk Hammett is playing, and I'm like, man, that sounds like a Larry Lalonde solo from mm-hmm. Possess, you know, who who later on moved into Primus, and I was like, but they came from the same area, like mm-hmm. Kirk Hammett out of Exodus, Possessed, and you know, both in San Francisco, mm-hmm. San Francisco, like metal bands that were playing with each other, and I'm sure they played shows well, together. That's a thrash metal's kind of. Got Bay Area roots. It's all I th- a lot deeper than L.A. Yeah, because yes. I, I think the only major band from L.A. in that genre was Slayer, who went up and played there all the time. Mm-hmm. They were always because the scene was big. Yeah, I think. Well, Megadeth's technically from here too. I think, mm-hmm. but uh, um, but yeah, and I was like, oh, you know, I hear. Yes, I, um, I filed a claim this morning. Yeah. Um, Bay Area. So yeah, so. The you know with 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 the Bay Area thrash metal uh, dominance in in the sound, but they didn't sound just like those bands. Like they didn't sound like a band that would be only you know in the first record they did in the, in the uh, Kill 'Em All record mm-hmm. during that time. You plugged them into a show. It was like, yeah, they fit right in with the line. Everyone had the same. I don't, I don't want to make it sound like everyone has the same sound, but there was a thematic theme to a lot of the thrash where it was like the speed of the music, the subject matter, and then this album comes in and it's it's like they're storytellers on a whole new you know level. The way that they actually put thought into how they wrote these songs and how they crafted the the narrative in a lot of these songs, mm-hmm. but with the chops to play, you know, this thrash bass and then throw on top. And and one of the things that's very comparable to Iron Maiden is how good Cliff Burton is on the bass. Mm-hmm. He's not just playing, you know... The, following the guitar. He's not following guitar. He's creating his own... You know, he's in... A, he's almost like... He's almost like in his own... Time trapped into the, you know what I mean? Like, like a heavy metal, um, like a heavy metal John Entwistle from The Who. Very, yeah, very much it's so. It's almost like the bass is doing a solo at all times. At all times, yeah. He's he's so creative. Well, he I was think, so creative. Yeah. I think they, yeah, the, what separated him from those bands was they just wrote better songs. I mean, sometimes bands leave the pack and they progress because they're just better, you know? Um, The thing I was going to talk about was, at this time, another thing that I think what gave them an edge towards appealing to the masses is that they had just 
enough of the metal imagery where it really, I mean, you pick up that album and yeah, there's crosses on it and the name doesn't, I mean, it's, they're called Metallica, um, but the name kind of looks like with that logo, it kind of looks spacey. It kind of, to me, it looks like an Explorer, like guitar, like the, the guitar that he, oh, that yeah. James Hetfield's playing on yeah. the back. Like it looks like real, it just looks metal, but it doesn't look evil. A lot of the other bands at this time, you're talking about Dark Angel, just the names, Dark Angel, Possessed, Slayer, Venom, Merciful Fate, you know, into King Diamond, like, all of that stuff was, like, dark, Satan, like, all these, you know, like, I remember being a kid, I was attracted to, like, for some reason, I just, I wanted to hear Venom, because I was like, man, this looks like the most evil stuff. Well, they have the goat's heads, uh, they have the Baphomet. Mm Mm-hmm face logo in there <laughs> and i remember going and grabbing the record we there was this one store it was in the montebello mall and it was a record store and they sold shirts and for some reason they had a lot of black metal and they had a lot mm. of stuff and i remember picking up a copy to um i think it was welcome it was either welcome to hell or at war with satan and i looked at the back of it and it was just these three dudes it's venom and I remember just being scared of it. Like, I was scared. But then that planted a seed where I was like, I, I got I to gotta get one of the records. Yeah. And mom wouldn't let me buy one because you're not going to let your 10-year-old kid buy a record called At War With Satan. But, but I mean, if you think about it, you're at war with Satan. You're not <laughs> yeah, at war for him. Exactly. <laughs> you're like, come on, mom. Fighting against him. <laughs> We're at war. Um, not a good mom. <laughs> oh, here we go. Uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is our mom. She's joining the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, we're actually doing it in our parents' house. This is where all these records were first brought home and listened to. Yeah. But I did end up buying a Venom record. I think I got it at best. It was just a live EP, um, like three songs. And uh, wasn't that, wasn't really It was that only good. three songs? Mm-hmm. Just a three-song uh-huh. EP. Um it's really not that good, but I just remember liking it because it was like finally had a Venom record. But yeah, like this this album, it was just enough. Like you remember the Ultimate Sin cover too? It's like Ozzy painted as like kind of a dragon monster and like oh, there's a girl in like leather pants. There was all that like it was almost not airbrush, but these it was art, airbrush like Ingve like Momstein record. Um, it's like fantasy painting. Striper put out a record this year too. Like there's all these. There was a certain kind. Metal had a certain kind of uh, like. There's all like um. It's like either H.R. Geiger, like that. That Emerson, like Dragon that Emerson, Lake, and Palmer cover. Mm-hmm. It's either that kind of stuff or it's very like fantasy. Like even remember English Dogs even had a cover yeah. that Where was like began. yeah, and it's like floating in the sky, like very fantastical, like you know, fantasy type dragons and slayers and stuff like that. It's pretty. Um, and then, but then you have like Slayer who does the opposite, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> who comes up with like real. I, I the uh, the com- album cover of Rain and Blood. This album cover actually is a painting, and it's two two hands in the sky with puppet strings on the on the grave headstones of the cross. You know, it's like soldier crosses. Yeah, and it's yeah, it's supposed to look like Arlington or something. Yeah, like a like a 
military, you know, cemetery. But but is that the whole theme? Well, the theme is just manipulation. The mm. theme is manipulation. So, like, in Leper Messiah, the, the theme is about the televangelists, you know, like mm. how you get conned by these televangelists. He's the Leper Messiah. Um, even the Welcome Home Sanatorium, even though it's one floor over the cuckoo's nest, you know, the, the story... And it's it it's welcome home sanitarium. So even though it's the cuckoo's nest, it's still like you come home from war. You know, after you've been manipulated into going and fighting this, you know, senseless war for no reason, you're a disposable hero. Like all the titles start to like make sense of each other, there's, almost like chapters in books. There's only eight songs on it, and it's about an hour long record too. It's, yeah, well, uh, you know, that was the other thing that I was thinking when I was listening to these. It's, almost, it's like borderline prog. Like, is Master of Puppets is like eight or nine minutes? It's actually saying it's yeah, it's eight and a half. And Orion is nine minutes, and it's an instrumental track. Eight and a half. That that one of the best songs. On any record is Orion. I can't believe Battery is five minutes. That song is so fast. Yeah, five minutes. And just not even, I don't even know what time. What's Damage Incorporated? That's probably the shortest song, right? Mm, five and a half. Still, that's so long. And then that, I remember, didn't Pusshead do some of their artwork? He did. Because um, wasn't there a Damage Incorporated shirt? Yeah, he did their artwork for, for like their merchandising and stuff mm-hmm. like that. I don't know if he ever did a cover. But he did that one where I loved it. It was a uh, like a like a skater, mm-hmm. you know. And, you, and then I think you had a poster. What was that pushead poster you had? That was the Misfits. Oh, Misfits, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he did a lot of that stuff, yeah. Because yeah, um, there was a lot of that artwork. Sam uh, Sam Hayen put out a record this year too. It says, um, "Oh, which one? I don't know." Initium? No, but um. Because did he do the Crozion Conformity Atomosity cover? That looks like Pusshead, too. You know no. the one where it's like the dude's face, and it's like it looks like his hair's all going, and it's like Oh, well, not, not the not the Crozion Conformity skull drawings. No, Atomosity Maybe cover. he did. I don't know. It looks like could be. Yeah, yeah he could have. But that was their edge, too, because they were like skate, punk, yeah. metal, they guitar fit. god. Yeah, and I, and I think... Hello? They kind of cover like every base. I think this that I think that they. Uh, so I'm gonna pause here. Shit. I'm fine, thanks. Oh, you know what? No, it's not really reading. It's not. Pick- I can hear it, but it's not picking it up. Good. Um. Oh, shit. What was I just lost my train of thought? Oh, what was I saying is, I think one of the things after after I went back and listened to this, and you know, it's it is a heavy metal record. It's definitely a heavy metal record, mm-hmm. but. I think the appeal that these guys had and this particular album had was that it had a lot of the what attracts people to like the punk rock stuff. It had it's like this would be something that even if you only listen to punk rock, you'd listen to this record. Kind of like um, uh, Motorhead. Yeah, like you wouldn't necessarily be attracted to an Iron Maiden record if you listen to punk rock because a lot of the Iron Maiden has got that operatic quality and you know they're even their themes to their songs are very like British literature you know like uh, Phantom of the Opera they even have a song called Phantom of the Opera you know it's like this one the like I said it was more of like if you took like a Charles Bukowski just the way he wrote was just cut dry to the point he didn't you know 
he didn't use a lot of like you know fanciful language. It was just cut and dry to the point. You didn't have to be pigeonholed. To yeah, and it was it. and but you knew what his themes were, and his themes were always very dark, and you know sullen. And like this album is very dark in its theme. You know, being manipulated by drugs, being manipulated by going to you know being a disposable hero for soldiers, um, being manipulated by televangelists. It's like the the themes were very dark, and the way in which they gave it, you know, produced it and, and put it out there was, especially because he speaks, he sings so clearly, you know, he's not, you know, he's not holding, you know, crazy notes. He's not, you know, fluttering his voice. That's what was crazy. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. What I didn't think about was, well, I guess there was, there was a point where a lot, like you could understand what they're saying. Like even if Very you, clear. Yeah. even if you don't say you had a, a tape, and you don't have the lyric sheet, if you listen to it over and over, you can figure out what they're saying. It wasn't oh, yeah. like some, you know, some stuff, like even when you have a lyric sheet, you're like, I guess is what he's saying. Because yeah. it's either it's too <laughs> fast or it's too, like, unrecognizable uh, phonetically, like what words are coming out. Um, and... I don't know. I mean, that's. It seems like that was their style from the second record, where it was like they were already maybe maybe consciously deciding, or just they were just getting better. Where it was like, okay, this is the way we write music, and it there was just this cleanness about it. Yeah, like I said, when in the mix, it's it's extremely clear. Nothing is muddled. Nothing's, you know, you don't hear anything muddied in this mix, and then. On top of it, the way he's presenting the vocals is very clear and concise. The thing that was, because I, you know, I did listen, I listened to Kill 'Em All a lot, um, probably more than this record, even though I think this one's better. Um, but you know which one I don't listen to a lot is Ride the Lightning. And I went back to listen to that, and there's an effect on his voice in Ride the Lightning mm. that kind of annoys me. Yeah. And I'm glad that they did not do that on this record because that would have ruined it. Because that's what I like most about this is it's so clear. Yeah. And he followed up and Justice for All in the same style. Mm-hmm. When they move on to the next record, the Black record, they do something completely different. And I know it's because they got that new producer guy, um, Bob Rock, who like really tried to polish their sound. And... I think that encouraged him to do a little bit more of the singing, mm-hmm. you know, instead of this style. He's doing a lot more, a lot more like, like singing, singing, you know. Yeah. And I haven't even heard that record. Well, it has songs that you, I probably, like Enter Sandman is the biggest song. I thought that was on, no, it's, it's on the and Black. Justice for All. No, it's on really? the Black. Yeah. One and Enter Sandman are both on the Black record, which I can't name any of the other songs on there. First, but I thought that was on Injustice for All. For but her. no, but they sound like Enter Sandman sounds like it could have been on Injustice for All, but mm. it's totally well, the Black album. Um, but like on Injustice for All, like Harvester of Sorrow is one of the ones that stands out for me. Like the, but you can start to hear they're going back to putting effects on the voices, mm. and they didn't do that on this one, which I think is the best one of the reasons why this one is just so good and like mm-hmm. the way it was recorded, the way it was put together, you know, um, well, I don't how, how clean it is too, though. I remember though, even when you, when you play it, like it jumps out at you. Like it's, it's allowed, like it has a lot of attack 
Because like Kill 'Em All, those songs, like I remember those songs being so heavy and super fast. And then listening back, they're still good, but it sounds like it's, it's thin. in a box. It's very thin. Yeah, like the drums yeah. don't sound very good. If, if there was a way for them to like, I mean, I'm sure there is a way for them to, to I, they would have to almost re-record that record. If they were able to re-record it like this style and have like, you know, not be so thin. And I don't mean just remaster it. I mean re-record it. <laughs> like, yeah. That would be amazing. Like, I think one of the reasons, uh, it was one of the reasons I bought the that Megadeth record that has mechanics because it's the same song as Four Horsemen. Mm-hmm. Because it's such a cleaner sounding version of it mm-hmm. is on on the Megadeth album. Yeah. You know, it's the same song because David Mustaine wrote it. But um, I wish that the Kill 'Em All version sounded that clean. You know, because it's such a good like that that all oh, those songs that are great. Yeah, hit the lights like everything on this. And I have that. I have a there was a cassette going around that was a house party recording. And it was Dave Mustaine. It was the the Metallica lineup with Dave Mustaine. Mm-hmm. You know, before they they brought Kirk Hammett in, and it's such a it's such a like I I think Kirk Hammett is way better fit, but Dave Mustaine plays faster. Mm-hmm. And this this house recording is such a good little gem. You know what I mean? And they have the MP3s online that you can find. Um, but it was a, I had it a few years back, like, yeah, like 10 years ago. And I was like, man, like, I kind of wish they had recorded a record like this. <laughs> it's weird. I'm looking back right now, too. So they put out, like, Kill Em All came out in 83, Ride the Lightning in 84, and then a year in between, which is probably just tons of touring. And then that's when they got signed. And then they put out the, um, this album. Well, and I think that, puppets. and I think they took a long time to record this record because they recorded oh, it, it in '85. Like yeah, but looking at Ride the Lightning, the songs are all a lot more sophisticated than Kill 'Em All, and that album too only has eight songs on it. But oh, yeah. this album, it's almost kind of like a, it's almost a concept album without being a concept album. Now that I'm digging a little bit more into it, thinking about what the lyrics are about, the cover art, the name of it, you know, the title track, uh, and also the the composing of it. Like, they're not just... Like, the other one, it's just like, okay, this is a song based on a riff. Like, this one, yeah, you listen to Master of Puppets, and there's this whole middle section, and you're talking about how, like, Iron Maiden, comparing them to Iron Maiden, but they have different, like, operatic themes. This one, there's definitely those themes, just not with, like, vocally, but musically, it definitely has some moments where it's like, it could almost be, like... Like uh, like you can almost hear like Andrew Lloyd Webber in there. A little bit. No, yeah, it definitely has um, an orchestra quality to it. And I remember I was watching a movie. Um, it's like Ben Stiller, your friends and neighbors. Hmm. It's like Jason Patrick and Ben Stiller, and I think Catherine Keener's in it too. Um, but the whole soundtrack is this group that does Metallica songs. In cello. Oh, Apocalyptica. Apocalyptica. And that was the first time I had ever heard 
the renditions done that way. And I was like, this really works. Like it's, if mm. you, you know, just like a lot of like Randy Rhodes stuff is very classical mm-hmm. and even a lot of Iron Maiden stuff. Oh, like yeah, it's a lot of classical tons. music, uh, you know, underneath it. And, <clears throat> and I was like, Oh, this sounds really cool. Like, like, I can't, I wish I can remember the, the soundtrack, the songs are on top, but it's like probably like four or five different songs and it's all in the four cellos doing it. You know, there's no other instruments going, but like, even like when, um, I'm trying to think of which song it is. There's a song on here where after, after it slows down and it might be Ma- Oh, it's master puppets. Cause he's all master master. And he's like, He's doing that that floor tom, like kind of like a tribal beat, mm-hmm. but it totally can just be like a timpani. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like it's it's building and building and building until it starts to get to that chant at the end where he's like begging to be released from this like hold. That and this particular song is a drug. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's like it's very very like orchestral. You know, like mm-hmm. it could totally be like an opera. You know, scene or movement or whatever. You know what it makes me think of is a band that they had to have influenced that I just despise is System of a Down. Like, because I've heard enough of their is that songs. The psycho, coking, psycho, whatever. <laughs> I don't know. They're like. I know who they are. They're like an Armenian band. Yeah. Yeah. They're Glendale Armenian. And, uh, I like a couple of their songs, but I don't. You hear Metallica in that? Definitely. Especially when it's like the. But just with that annoying voice and like, I, I don't mm. know. Like, that's the thing too with, with this band. I think. I think a lot of whatever, like shredding, there's two ways to go about it. There's a way where there's a context for it and a platform for it where it makes sense. And when it's there and like with Randy Rhodes, like the two albums that he did with Ozzy Osbourne, like every time there's room for a solo and the way that the solo is played, it's perfect. It's like he's not playing the same solo every single time. He's doing something really musical that fits, and it's almost like like he's writing it for the song. Right. And then there's some shredding that is like, okay, here's your chance. We're in this key, but then they just still play the same solo over and over. It's just all about getting as many notes and just showing off. Well, that's what I was I was bringing that up on the last on the last one we talked about. Or maybe it wasn't the last one, but we were talking about. Like that guy from Racer X that like... Just, I think it was when we did the Van Halen his, his fingering is so fast that he had to use a drill that had like multiple picks on it going yeah. around. It's like, that's you're just doing it just to do it. You're not doing it because the song needs it. Yeah, it's it. not even musical. And that's, that was funny because I was like, when I was listening to this, I was like, it's not annoying. The, the, when the song breaks into a guitar solo... It's like still has that old kind of like 70s quality to it where Mm -hmm. you like anticipate it and you like wait for it. Yeah. And it's not annoying. But then like there's some musical. There's some new bands where I'm I'm not taking away from the abilities. And I think the guitar players are really good, but the song doesn't need it. There's a band. I think it's uh, it's called Avenged Sevenfold. Uh-oh. And these two guitar players, and I think they're really good guitar players. Like the technicality is like there, but nothing in those songs is good. 
because they're not doing it for the benefit of the song. They're doing it for the benefit of showing off what they can do. Mm-hmm. And there's two of them. So they're just like, they're going at each other. It would be like if Ingrid Momsen and Steve Vai made an album together. You know, it's like, who? nobody wants to hear that. Like, yeah. you still want to hear the construct of a song. Like, what is the song for? Yeah. You know, I don't need, I can hear, I can listen to, you know, Jeff Buckley singing without any instruments and be happy. Well, and that's why, like, uh, Randy Rhodes was such an important, like, he's like, and not even just because the way he looks, he's like a Mick Ronson, where it's the solo, maybe he's not the fastest guy, but he's going to play notes that are going to eternally be ripped off forever because it's like, man, what did he just think of? And it's because of that, like, it's classical... It's hard driving. It's, you know, just the notes that are chosen and getting those, like, heart-wrenching, you know, just sometimes just hitting one note and just holding it and getting the sound. And, like, you know, like, not everybody's Eddie Van Halen. Like, Eddie Van Halen is going to keep your attention, maybe not so much because it's soulful or that, he's playing something really musical it's just because the way that his fingers are moving and where it's hitting it's just it doesn't sound like anything else and i think like that it the, sounds otherworldly and i think the people like the randy and definitely eddie van halen the t- like he his frankenstein guitar like he was obsessed with getting a sound out of that guitar like he well yeah that, and that's what makes it so unique yeah like they chase that tone like, they're obsessed with the tone of their guitar. You listen to so many of... Like, a lot of these other records that came out, like London put a record out, Slaughter put a record out. I'm sure you can... Bon Jovi, Slippery When Wet came out this year. Um, you can probably almost auto-tune maybe 10 solos on any of these records and just interchange them. Oh, the same thing. Like change yeah. the key, put it in this, and it's like, oh, this fits here, this fits there. But like a Randy Rhodes uh, guitar solo and Mr. Crowley is only for that song. Uh, and I feel the same way about the way like Kirk Hammett plays his guitar solos. Like his solos are for that song. Yeah, it's and not like, just like, oh yeah, this is just a guy that could come up and like, it's not jazz. You can't just sit in and, like, oh, let me just rip, you know, a solo right here. Yeah, and, like, and like you know, to your point of, like, the Mr. Crowley, like, here's here's Randy Rhodes playing this, like, very, like, you know, almost like an Edgar Allan Poe thematic, you know, very, like, uh, you know, theatrical kind yeah, of, like, like Wagner performance. Or something. And then on the same, I don't know if it's on the same record, but then you hear, like, Steal Away the Night, and he's got this, like, fat 70s, like, queen tone, and well, he's riffing. Crazy Train. Yeah, and like, it's like, but the his ability to, to do, like, this T-Rex, you know, Brian May, like, 70s fat rock and roll tone, you know, riff, and then go and do, like, Mr. Crowley, which is, mm-hmm. like, he has the ability to do both. When to do what. And I think that's what's missing in some of these really technical guys is they can only do that one thing. They can only do that technical thing. That's what makes me... That's why I was thinking, like, like, like how operatic, even, like, vocally with, like, System of a Down, how they get at times. And then when you just hear the guitar solos, it's just, like, 
It just sounds like throw up. Like, I don't want to hear that. I only know one of their songs because I'm not a fan of that band at all. But it's the song that I know, awful. I like it because it's, he just keeps saying psycho cocaine. Psycho, like, I think mm. that's the words. And I'm like, but then he starts doing this, like, weird, and the tone of his voice is god awful. Yeah. He does this weird, like, yodel. I don't yodel. Even know how that band got big. He's doing this, like, yodeling kind of a I know. weird thing. And I'm just like, that. Uh, turn change the fucking you know KLOS you're killing me on this one, um, but yeah like so I don't know what Kirk uh, Hammett's background is, but I know he was um, oh man I wish I could remember which guitar player it could be Steve Vai I'm probably totally remembering this wrong, um, but he actually went and sat with this with this particular guitar player to learn methods like he was kind of obsessed with the recording process mm. and on one of the tracks eh, i can't remember which track it is i'm have no memory right now um but he even took the the high e uh-huh. and took it off the you know how the, on the very top of the fretboard you, you it's in that little groove uh-huh. i don't know what that part of the guitar is called mm-hmm. um but he even pulled the string out so that it would get a higher note. Mm. Like, because that's how obsessed he was with, like, getting... Can I talk to you, Patrick, uh, before, I leave, before we leave? Okay. Sorry. Uh, okay. He was getting, you know... Uh, you know, he was obsessed with the tone, and he was obsessed with getting... How can he achieve this, you know... Because he, he detuned a lot of the, a lot of the songs. Mm. Especially, I think James Hetfield's more of the detuned, because he's doing all the downstroke yeah. rhythm, power chord stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then when Kirk goes into solos, he needed to reach a higher note. So he just took this, he learned this little trick where you take the string out of that little mm-hmm. top of the fretboard groove and it's just kind of floating, you know, there to, to get it higher. It's, it was just interesting to hear because, like, I'm not a guitar player. I don't know any of these little mm-hmm. tricks and stuff that they do. He could have came up on that accident or just learned it. I mean, all those metal dudes were all playing together and doing, you know, innovating things at that point. Yeah. Um, I know he pops up a lot, too, in the uh, the Rush documentary. Kirk Hammett does, in particular. Um, and I never really put those together, but because, like, the way Alex Lifeson, his guitar work evolved, because, I mean, Rush put out tons of records. I mean, they've been a band for over 30, 40 years now. Um, early stuff, it's like he's playing... Like just rock and roll, you know, solos. Yeah. And then going into the late seventies, early eighties, definitely coming out of like when they really were a prog band, like with Hemispheres and Farewell to Kings. Um, he's playing the guitar in a different light, but kind of like um, in that classical vein, but not mm. so confined where it's like an Iron Maiden or a Judas Priest. Yeah. Um, it's almost just a different approach. I don't know. Maybe it had to do with him being Canadian, which I don't... Because, I mean, at that point, they were they were all, always in America anyway, making records and touring and stuff. But yeah. I never really... Like, I know Rush influenced everybody, and... Um, but sometimes, like, going back and hearing, you know, because it's like, what, Rush and Metallica? That doesn't make sense. But it does when it comes down to, like, the musicianship and the technical, you know, 
just sonically what's happening. Uh, and also, like, Kirk Hammett, too, even in interviews, like, he seems like a really cool person, but he's just he's just a nerd. You know, yeah, that little, talk, that little just mousy like, voice that he has, too. Yeah, and he's just a freak that probably spent hours and hours and hours alone in his bedroom with his guitar. And if you, like, if, you, if we were going to, like, uh, you know, another thing that's pretty eclectic is, like, you know, they put their Garage their Garage Days albums out, which, you know, which was their covers, and you go from The Misfits to Queen to Diamond Head Budgie. to Budgie, and it's, you know, they have, like, this really, you know, broad spectrum of, like, things that they were playing, I guess, the things that they were learning how to play when they were in the garage, and... I obviously, you know, I, I I didn't I didn't know who Budgie was. I didn't know who um, who Diamond Head was, or just another another band I'm missing right now. But yeah, so the the band that I was was saying I couldn't think of is, is a band uh, called Holocaust. Like, where are they from? And when? Scottish uh, metal band from the seventies. They did the the small hours um, cover on their garage thing, and then the other one um, was a Killing Joke song, which I've recently been listening to that first Killing Joke record. You know that has, mm-hmm. I think it's the first one that has the song the '80s, mm-hmm. and I only think of them as that with that song on there. But there's a lot of good stuff on that record. Actually, it's pretty they're, good. They're heavy, like kind of proto metal, kind of gothic. Yeah, they kind of because like industrial, that industrial. They're like all over the that place. '80s song is very like the industrial like beginnings or whatever. Um, but I didn't realize that that was a cover. That's a cover on that Garage Days too. Is how a, many tracks are on that? I think is it's only like eight? five. So it's Helpless, which is Diamond Head. The Small Hours, which is the Holocaust. The Weight is the Killing Joke song. Uh, Crash Course in Brain Surgery, which is Budgie, and then The Last Crest Green Hell, which is The Misfits. So it's only five tracks. Mm -hmm. And then the other song that I was confusing was The Bread Fan, which is The Budgie, which is also Budgie. Those came out with Justice for All. They were uh, singles. I remember uh, you had cassette singles. I had a cassette single of Bread Fan. It was uh, another, was it Am I Evil, Creeping Death? Bread fan. It was like, you know, like a picture disc. I thought those were... Because Creeping Death is on the album before. I thought Am I Evil was separate. I thought that came out between Ride the Lightning and Master of Puppets. It could have. Because I remember you had cassette singles, which I think when Master of Puppets came out, cassette singles weren't even that big. Because you got to think, when did that Justice Rock come out? 88? 87, 80. Yeah, probably 88. Yeah. I think by then, the cassette singles had already made a splash. And I, I think it was, was it one? That's on the black record. Well, then it was another one of those songs, where, like a slower song um, on Justice for All. It was, like a, it was like their singles, and then the B-sides were like Stone Cold Crazy by Stone Cold Queen, Crazy, Queen, yeah. And then The Bread Fan by Budgie, because I remember you bought two cassette singles. Um, but they were in Justice for All, because even the artwork correlated. Like, it was all that, like, you know, it looked... Like granite or whatever stone. Yeah, yeah. Justice for All is eighty-eight, and it's uh, Harvester of Sorrow, Eye of the Beholder. Mm. That was the single. Oh no, you're right. One. See, yeah, that I, that wasn't on. Yeah, that you're right. It is black one album or whatever. Yeah, it's one is on that. I knew I wasn't 
set tripping. You weren't tripping? Uh, so Blackened and Justice for All, Eye of the Beholder, One, Shortest Draw, Harvester of Sorrow, Freydens of Sanity, To Live is to Die, and then Dyer's Eve. But I do remember when you got the CD for Garage Days Revisited, it was... It was just so cool because it was, I mean, the songs are great. The recording's way, like, for them, you know, like, really primitive. Like, it sounded really raw. Um, and to think back, like, I don't think anyone's ever done anything like that again. Maybe they have, but, like, that was kind of a big deal. I remember they even sold it for, like, six bucks or something. Like, it was, like, a... It was the $5.98 EP. Yeah, yeah. it was, like, a, it was it was like a, uh, a really fairly priced... It was um, just that they did that. Like, yeah. they here's this band that, you know, is working in the circuit. They got some records under their belts. Now they got some, you know, they're up on the, on the, the world stage, and they give something back like that that was just so, like, it wasn't like, you know, I don't know, there's, there's other bands that have tried to either play a free show here or there or like that one time which didn't even work i mean the intentions were kind of good but like pearl jam had that thing where they were fighting Ticketmaster, or back then it might have even have been ticketron but they were basically oh, just getting upset the, about the all service the, fees yeah so then yeah. they set up a tour in alternate venues well you know what's funny that's what kicked off coachella Oh, really? So their fight against... Oh, because I think they played out Their there, fight right? against Ticketmaster... Turned... Was at the, pol- at the Polo anyway. Grounds in India. Yeah. And then it ended up being yeah, the biggest Ticketmaster or whoever runs... I don't know if it's, it's Live Nation or it's whoever like, runs I think that. it's Ticketmaster. Or what's that company that bought everybody? Live Nation or whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, but they it's so funny because it was an anti-Ticketmaster, mm-hmm. you know, or anti-big company... Event that turned into the biggest one ever, which yeah. is now Coachella, which but they is found, pretty hilarious. Because they found alternate venues that weren't in contracts. Yeah. But, you know, like, they were already bigger at that point. Um, some bands, like, like U2 is just, uh, just, there's no shame in what they do. They're just all about being bigger and better and... Uh, but they definitely had their moment too when they put out like the pop album where they were playing like like the Coliseum. They were playing the biggest venues in the world and they weren't even filling them up, not even halfway. So but then Oh, the pop that's where he had like his persona. He yeah, had like he a was dressed alternate in that muscle man sh- thing and And he had like the devil horns and stuff. Yeah, it was yeah. it was too much. Like but thinking about them, like because they progressed, you know, they kept getting bigger and bigger. But the the Zoo TV tour was huge. Like, they were playing the Rose Bowl. That was Octung Baby, and, right? Um, the Zoo? It was after that, I think. Because that song is on that. Yeah, because yeah. they, I think they did a big tour. And basically, it was like they did two round, two laps. Like, their world tour, I think, for that was maybe three years. Hmm. But that tour was huge. And then they just tried to get bigger, and it didn't happen. Because another thing is, people, you know, they there's other bands, there's other things to see. But anyways, I think them doing, giving this back, having it priced, you know, like they, they must have had a lot of creative control to do that. You know, you, you're thinking, even though, even though it's a band, and they seem like they're just 
they're real musicians that over time turned into businessmen because they had to just take care of their, you know, their own asses or yeah. assets, whatever you want to say. Uh, just but, the longevity of their preservation of themselves and their families. I think at that point they were young enough where it was bold that they were just like, okay, well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to release a, you know, bands that influenced us or whatever, almost like demos, um, just to give something back in between the next album. And let's price it at this price. Like that took a lot of, you know, just that, just that they even thought of it, and that they went through with it, because you know that also there's probably a lot of ideas that just get left on the on the cutting room floors of these acts that right. think of things or they want to produce things or they want to you know or like well, I said, most, like a, you know most bands when they owe the record label an album they just do a greatest hits yeah or and a live like, album and this was like way more invent you know way more creative like hey why don't we just play the songs that we practiced when we were And because they being were a just band. starting. Yeah. Because isn't that before Injustice for All? Yeah. So that's their second... It's in between it's Master their Puppets second major and... major album, major label release, right. if you think about it. It's, their, it's the one right in between Master Puppets and, and Injustice for All. And since they were touring with Ozzy in support, uh, they were playing arenas, you know, like Long Beach Arena here and mm-hmm. all across that whole tour. They were doing, when they came back... Um, I remember trying to catch this show. They were, I don't know who else they were doing it with. I think it was another band in San Francisco. It could have been Exodus because they had a lot of close ties, which was the band that Kirk Hammett had come from. But they had a, they were doing club shows as a different name mm-hmm. called the Spastic Children. Mm-hmm. And it was, I don't know who was all in the lineup, but they weren't playing their their regular instruments. They mm-hmm. were like, I think it was like, I don't know if it was Kirk Hammett on drums or James Heffield on drums, but they were like switching roles, mm-hmm. doing, and then they were doing the same thing. They were doing covers, but in like, they would just put the name on the bill and then just show up at, at a show. No one knew who this band was. Yeah. And it would be like members of other metal bands together, and then they would just do punk covers or something. Yeah. Yeah. I remember them playing, they played the Palladium, no, it was either the Palladium or the Palace. I think it might have been the Palace. And I was like, I never made it. I wanted to go so bad to see that, but I never got to go to that show. It would have been fun. But yeah, um, so after, after uh, Garage, or what would I say, Garage Days? Mm-hmm. Garage Bands? <laughs> Wait, Garage Band is a, is a is the app that we're using. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and then before, you know, before the polishness of of the what they call the black record, the self-titled record, it's I don't think anything matches up to this. Um, and if we want to get into the into I don't know if you have anything else to add, but to get into the rating of this one. I think they would probably say that that was their swan song too. Um, not that, I mean, I don't know. I mean, they, they still progressively got bigger. They still play, didn't they play this year at the Rose Bowl? Like, it's not like they're going away. Um, I think they did have a lot of backlash when they cut all their hair and did stuff like that. But that's the other thing. It's like, man, you got to think when they started, they had to be teenagers. You know, even when they put out their first record, they were probably barely in their 20s. Probably, um, yeah. And like they're, you know, just Hessians, you know, like wearing 
ripped up jean jackets and long hair, and they were probably just about partying and playing shows. And then it's like, well, I mean, God, they've been a band for how many years now? Like 1980? It's 2019? Like, even... It's coming on 40 years, yeah. Even 20 years ago, when they were halfway from now, and they cut their hair, you know? It's like, it was just this big, like, backlash where it's like, you got to think... Maybe there's like young kids that get in. There's always there's always new blood that gets into classic bands, um, but classic bands that are still relevant. Like, for instance, like Black Sabbath. Kids are always going to be turned on to Black Sabbath, and there's going to be like they're going to have like Black Sabbath years in their music listening lives, where it's like, oh my god, I was so into Black Sabbath when I was a kid. Yeah. But the thing is, because they're not really a relevant act anymore on the circuit because they're not making new albums. They're not, you know, touring the same way that they used to be. It's they're like a novelty now. Um, and they they did a tour last not too long couple ago. Years I think it was ago? just without Bill Ward. Was it like an Ozfest thing? I don't know. But yeah. what I'm trying to say is like, but yeah, you can still a buy a new period of like Black Sabbath with the imagery and the songs and like. You don't have to keep growing with them. Right. Yeah. So anybody that got mad at like Metallica, like, it's like even thinking about just like a fan, like say a fan that has been there from the get go, it's like you can't be mad at the artist because they cut their hair and they cleaned up their act. Like, but just because you're still whatever, you're 50 and you're still going to the bar and doing the same, like, unevolved living the same unevolved life that you've lived like and you're not making art like who are you to criticize but you know you know how it is everyone's gonna get criticized for everything yeah especially nowadays it's like nobody's happy about anything because no matter what it is people are gonna find a laundry list of complaints and just everything yeah be you tv know. movie but um book but <laughs> it's like you got to think like man these guys are now in their, you know, they once they got into their 40s, it's like, man, do they still have to keep living like they were when they were 18? Yeah. Like, why, you know? And they're still making music. They're still making new records. They're still touring. They're, they're not, like, they're not basically, and I'm not trying to put a band like ACDC down, but, like, you listen to ACDC, their rec- it's like the same record keeps coming out over and over and over yeah, ever since the one, I don't even know the name of the album, but it's not for those about to rock, but it's in the Brian Johnson years. It might be, is it Who Made Who? Is that an album? That's the soundtrack album, but yeah. Oh, it's like whatever whatever that record was, That's that was it. That came out in the same year as Master of Puppets when I was reading that thing. Did it? Okay, so that was like, that was, that they haven't done anything new or different since that record. And not that... Because even like, you know, Back in Black was written with Bon Scott in mind. He yeah. was supposed to sing on that record. I think record. that was supposed to, yeah, he was supposed so to So you still hear that. that like Bon Scott, the sound that they had with him, mm-hmm. you know, like Dirty Deeds and, and anything previous to that, uh, anything prior to that. It, it, the Back in Black, you know, Brian Johnson just, that was like a gold mine for him because that was like the perfect album for him to come in at. But the sound that they created from then on, it just got monotonous and like, yeah. you know, this, it was the same. Not that 
the Bon Scott stuff was really different. Meaning, like each album wasn't like drastically yeah. different. It had they a sound like Black Sabbath. Like you listen to to Heaven and Hell, the first album with Dio and Black Sabbath. It's completely different. Right. It's yeah, when I stopped liking. Completely different. <laughs> he doesn't even sing like. Who else? Who else sang? Well, it was Ian Gillian from Deep, Deep Purple, Purple sang on right. um, on Born Again, which that album I remember seeing that album at Zodi's. And I was terrified. That's the fetus. It's like the little baby. Devil fetus. Yeah, but yeah. it's like with this purple. And I just remember being like, man, that's terrifying. It yeah. still gives me the creeps. Um, and then they had... Uh, who and he's, he's the singer. He's the Smoke on the Water singer? Uh-huh. Okay. Deep Purple. No, I know he's from Deep Purple. I just yeah. didn't know if they had a lineup change. Well, no. Well, David Coverdale was after him. He's the one on Burn. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's White And then guy. they had a Deep Purple before that. Before Ian Gillian had a different singer, but they were a totally different band back then. Oh, really? Like they were almost like well, because they were coming out of that like, um, like, uh, like a harder edge, like Spencer Davis group or something, like all mm. that that like leftover sixties, sixties rock know, and roll blues. It's like, like the Moody Blues yeah. were a different type of band, and then they evolved into borderline prog. Procol Harum, like all, there was like that kind of core of like bands that some of them out of that camp were doing hard edge psychedelia and then they just either stayed soft or they went hippie, full on flower power, or they went heavy. And that's what Deep Purple did. Because right. like that Shades of Deep Purple, um, the song Hush, like that was like a British invasion hit. And you listen to that and it's not anything like Smoke on the Water. It's almost like early um, Uriah Heep is the same way. And, like, Uriah Heep's one of those Hush. bands Hush. that turned into, like, like a heavy metal, proto-heavy metal right, band. Right, yeah. Um, but, um, what was I saying? The, uh, man, we got so, we are talking about ACDC. Um, we were talking about... Oh, like, so, the, like, yeah, like, ACDC, the, their We were albums. talking about the, the fan base, the new fan base that can still catch them in their current state yeah, and like go back to their flag. catalog. Like, yeah. yeah, like look at Brian Johnson and Angus Young. They still dress in the same <laughs> outfits, which good for them. They didn't have to yeah. change. They're still making the same albums. But it's like, that's also kind of like, like, man, you're a grown man still wearing that. Like, that it's school, silly. Like, that schoolboy outfit. To a degree, they must feel trapped the same way, like, like Kiss feels trapped, where it's like, you makeup, guys are still doing... Makeup or no makeup. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of retarded. Um, but, like I said, like, no one's going to be happy about anything. They're going to get I mean, flack. I've given all the albums since Injustice for All a Chance. I really was disappointed in that self-titled black one and there's a couple of songs like there's a song i think it's called sad but true i like the i like i think i like that song the most on that record mm-hmm. but not because of the songwriting it's just the style that they kind of got into like it was like it was almost like they just gave up um what they were all about in the first place like they like master puppets is like like the antithesis of what was happening is, is in the glam rock you know, the glam heavy metal thing there. And then it's almost like they just like, we're like, well, since that's popular, since the softer, you know, we're just going to go that route. Even though it didn't turn into that. Yeah. And then I listened to, what's the other one that came out? I don't even know the order of all these, but 
I think it was called Saint Anger, and they even made a movie oh, where yeah. they went to some prison and played a concert or something. And there's a couple of tracks. It's like it's not bad, but it's just not good. It's not. It's not. The, or I shouldn't say it's not good. It's not. It's nothing that I'm gonna like. It's not. It's just not. It's immemorable. Yeah. And then they did one called the Death Magnetic, I believe. And again, one song, maybe two at the most, that has a little bit of something interesting in there. I don't even know if they've done anything since. I actually have yeah. not been following well, it's hard what too. they I mean, do. They've been putting out records for so long and then having the stigma of like, oh, but we're Metallica. We have to be fast or we have to sound dangerous or we you know and then yeah. it's like yeah i remember hearing something off that saint anger like it was like a radio premiere and like at this point because i don't even listen to anything after injustice for all it just wasn't my wasn't my bag anymore yeah and even again like metallica really kill them all is the only one that like if i like when i hear that it makes me feel something um just yeah, because like, it's so, you know, it's that's it's, that's the go-to one. Like, if like I feel like edge. if I feel like listening to them, that's the one I go for. Yeah, I go for Kill 'Em All. But, um, the the um, oh shoot, I just lost my train of thought. I was gonna say the um, there we were talking about it earlier about the orchestration influence. It seemed like you know a little bit of classical. They actually did a full album. With an orchestra? With an orchestra, yeah. I don't remember. See, not, I don't remember if it was, like, just a span of hits or if it was... I think... No, it was, like, all their... I think it was their catalog. And it was cool because they were actually playing with the orchestra. Yeah. But it still wasn't... I still never bought it. Well, yeah, that's just <laughs> strange. It's, like... At that point, like, it's just, like... Not that they're a novelty, but it's, like, really... Why did they, you know... You know that wasn't their idea. You know it was someone in the in the record company or in their management that was like, "Hey, there's an offer. You guys want to do this?" You know, not everything should be done. And I think that's when I lean towards like, like man, you, the name of your band is Metallica. Like, maybe cutting your hair, that's fine or whatever. The thing that they did with Lou Reed, like I didn't hear any of that. I don't even know why they would have they done did, that. In the they first didn't place. just do one with Lou Reed. They did one with that other guy. Um, Who? Oh God, I'm blank. That the actor. An actor? Yeah. What's his? Oh no, not an actor. He was an old like, like, uh, like a Dean Martin kind of guy. Like a. Oh yeah, yeah. Not Pat Boone. Pat Boone. No. Didn't they do it with Pat Boone? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that was that was them with him. But the Lou Reed one was, and you know, and I'm a huge Lou Reed fan. It was garbage. But, yeah, and, like, even, I remember when, um, I still haven't even seen it, and I'll probably never watch it, but I remember being kind of, kind of intrigued when they were putting out some kind of monster, because it was just like, oh, this sounds cool, like, you know, them, I think it had to do with them losing Jason Newstead and getting the new guy from uh, Suicidal Tendencies, their bass player. Um, oh yeah, that guy's. Uh, but I remember watching Trujillo something. He's good. Robert Trujillo. He's really good. I remember watching like the first I don't know hour or whatever. Well, not even an hour, maybe thirty minutes. And I was like, man, I don't want to. It's just crybabies. 
Like, you know, and then the whole thing with uh, my biggest gripe with them, too, which it wasn't helping that I wasn't listening to their music, but the whole Napster thing and, like, Lars Ulrich being so vocal, like, I just lost a lot of intake. Like, I lost a lot of respect because it was like, you know, I get it. Like, something that's yours, your art, and um, you have to protect it, this, that, and the other. But it's like, dude, like, where did you come from? And, like, how... How did your music, how does he think that his music got widespread in the beginning? It was kids that were making tapes. tapes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, you know what those kids did? They created an army, a legion of of total um, committed fan base that made you who you were. And then here comes along this program that is like a platform to share music, which is the same thing, but now just because it's more apparent that people are doing it and you can't really turn a blind eye to it, and that he had such a big, like, opposition to it, it was like, dude, you're already rich. You're already rich and famous, <laughs> and, like, what is this even going to do to you? That, that to me seem like something that should come from one of those, like, like a Bono. Like, he makes no gripes about that, you know, he, he was he was a uh, didn't he sponsor or he put a ton of money into, like, Palm Pilot and he was like, he's not trying to make any uh, excuses for I don't trying know if to he go did out Palm, and be pulled. I don't know if he did Palm Pilot, but he's, he a, he's he an officer Palm Pilot He's an officer of the UN's World Bank, and he started that whole red company. But or, exactly, like yeah. he is not ma- is not making any excuses for being politically involved and yeah. trying to make money. They did that thing where it was like, oh, iTunes, everyone gets the U two album. Like it is just straight un unashamed, right? You know? Yeah. But for someone like a Lars Ulrich, it's like, and then after, and then seeing that movie, I'm like, man, that's just a it's just a crybaby. And, you know, like, when they get on their little, like, oh, well, now it's the Grammy Awards, and, like, everyone gets up there, and it's like, let's say political things, and it's like, you know what? It's like, whatever, man. That's such a completely different world nowadays anyways, and I don't even think it means what it used to, like, you know. Well, it's just the music industry is, like, clutching at whatever can be relevant anymore. You know, like, this these these uh the new thing is now the com- the competition for the streaming services so spotify just is just as the biggest one uh-huh. by default everyone's chasing spotify mm-hmm. then jay-z and whoever his company goes and makes this title and it's like oh it's an exclusive thing it's like nobody nobody signed up that and it's 20 bucks a month regular ones are like nine dollars a month or 15 mm-hmm. for five people or something like that and it's like that's the new thing to go after. It's like it's if people were just making if people were just concentrating on making good music the content exactly then it's going to get out there. People are going to want to go get it wherever it's at. Mm-hmm. And it's the it's like reverse now. It's all about like oh let's create this like you know even just like with the mentioning the Coachella thing it's like now it's the festival itself is bigger than the acts that are there. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes there it doesn't to, even matter. To enjoy the music. They go there to... It's not even a rock festival anymore. No, it's an Instagram gallery. And this is a thing where... there And I think there's still people that are doing it. And it comes down to their confidence. Like, I'm not a Radiohead fan, but when they did that thing... I can't remember how many years ago it was now. It was in Rainbows. It was... Uh, 
2005 or six where they name your own price. Yeah. yeah. And it wasn't like people stole it. People pay fair prices. And, yeah. but it was like, there are in that platform. So they have the capacity to do whatever they wanted. And they did it in a good way where it was like, Hey, they are not, they are acknowledging that the fans are the ones that put them there. So they're making it, you know, fair. Like all these people that are like, oh, let's fight the record industry and this, that. And it's like, to me, it just looks ugly because really it's, it's not about saving an industry. It's about saving your ass and your, oh, I should, I should have all the money. I'm, I should be respected. And then they put it out there for everyone to see. And it's like, you got some kids that are, they don't want to see that. They don't even understand that. You know, they just want to see your name in lights and they're going to go see your band. If, it, you know, why don't they fight the ticket prices? Like $50 to go see anything at the Palladium? That is ridiculous. You know, that is insanity. Um, and 50, and as, today, $50 is actually a cheaper ticket. And that's ridiculous. I've looked at tickets to Nothing go... Nothing should cost uh, that much. I've looked into tickets like the Ace Theater and other venues, and it's like 100 bucks yeah. minimum. And the bands aren't getting that. No. And it's, it's So it's like they don't it's fight insane. any of those things. They're not thinking about the fans at that moment. They're never thinking. I don't think that they're thinking about the fans at all. When Radiohead puts out a record and says, hey, take it, do pay us whatever you want, yeah. that's thinking about the fans. And if there's people that are like, oh, well, there's MTV doesn't show videos anymore. Um, Spotify is the biggest thing or whatever. It's like, you know what? The artists have more control than they even could imagine, but I don't think they're coming together. They're just thinking about themselves, you know? Like, yeah. And, and that's just retarded. What's it's like, funny is because, I mean, I think record stores are making a comeback, but in, that ga- in those gap years when, like, when Tower closed, that was, like, that, that was, was huge. That was devastating. And, you know, when Amoeba, we, we got lucky and we got an Amoeba here locally. I don't want to say, I don't, shouldn't say lucky because when they first moved here, I, I didn't go. I think it was the first two years I wouldn't step foot in there because it symbolized the killing of all the little stores. Like my favorite store was Aaron's. But it's still, it, a, it's not a, it's not a, what's it called though? I mean, it's a big store, but it's not a. It's not a corporation. Yeah. No, I understand. But you know what I mean? When they but first the moved here. That's they, how Aaron's went out. They Rhino took, went out. Yeah, they took out all the little stores. So and was, they took all those people. I know the workers work there, too. But, you know, then I was like, you know what? This is a good store. And that's the place I probably go to the most. I still go to, you know, I go to Permanent. And I go to, like, all the little, like, uh, art form and all that stuff. I was in uh, Gimme Gimme the other day. And I've never found anything there. There or the... They're what's new. The, what's the other one in Atwater? Atwater? Jackknife? I don't like Jackknife. I've never knife. been to Jackknife. Yeah. Um, Gimme Gimme had like the new arrival used stuff. There was some good stuff in there, but it's just the prices. I still like Freakbeat, but I mean, that's a used record store. Yeah, Freakbeat's great. Um, but what I was saying with the streaming services is, because it's all algorithm-based, there's no... Like, you know when you walk into a record store circa this year, circa 1986, they can put all these albums on the end cap. So when you walked in, mm-hmm. and they also had that like cool, like Tower used to do this all the time. 
tower displays. would do like all these cool displays and it would be like 3D cutouts floating from the ceiling mm-hmm. and like it you know grabbed your attention and you walked over like oh I've been seeing artwork of Metallica like Injustice yeah. for All was like a bigger display well, than Master of Puppets. The labels would send all those promo materials and the workers would make stuff. Yeah. They would and you'd make get stuff. like a stack full of posters and then whoever was there who was creative enough would like cut them up and like do something mm-hmm. cool so that like you know and it's like well, the equivalent to that now is having your because there's no real front page of Spotify because it's it's uh, it's what do you call it? It's um, it changes for every user. Like whatever your Spotify is doesn't look the same as mine. Yeah, because it's based on the algorithms of which have it of what you listen to. Mm-hmm. So when you go on, and it's like, oh, you know, this is what we're suggesting based on what you listen to. And then they have like a new music, you know, tag where it's like, oh, new music Friday. So then you click on that and it's like whatever came out that week. And that one, I don't even know if that's like a pay to play type thing or how they get their stuff there. So if a band coming out now, they have to self-promote everything. There's mm-hmm. no there's no place to put. You well, know, there's still companies that are doing I mean, Payola has never left in that. It's just changed form, shapes. Yeah. In the, yeah. That form is, format is always going to exist. Basically, and even like, you know, like Master of Puppets, not to say, not to take any of its merit away, but the reason why it was on end caps and in every store is because of money. Well, it was because of Electra. They were yeah, on they, Electra now. There yeah. was a, ton, a huge campaign push for that. Yeah, because there was no... Was it Metal? Who was, who was their label before? Metal Blade? Or um, Megaforce or something? Megaforce, I think. And it's like, they didn't have any end caps. It was like, you had to go and look for those records. You had to, go, you had to know that there was a band named Metallica and there was this album called Ride the Lightning. And well, you yeah, could and they go could and only do, like... Remember, like, what was it... Uh, NWA stuff on Ruthless Records, like before that, wasn't it Priority? Like they could only Priority, well, Priority was a distributor. They could only get so big because they're just like, they just physically don't have the capabilities of making that many records. Well, that's what's funny about it. It's tricky. You have the record label and then you have the distributor, Mm -hmm. which isn't the label, but they get to put their tag on there. Because they're paying for it. Right. And it's just like a publishing company. Like, yeah, that's what's crazy too is the how much, how little money the actual artist actually makes. I can't remember. I read a book. I, it was a book that came out probably back in like 1990. I remember we carried it at the warehouse, and I bought it or borrowed it, and uh, it broke down. So if you were a band, if you were a four-member band, and you sold a million records, it broke down that each member made something like eighteen dollars to $20,000 a year. Yeah, like a, like, and probably for that year, that would probably be a, like an average job. Well, think about it, 1990. Only for a year. Think about it, that's 1990. Yeah. yeah, and that's having to sell one million copies. Yeah, so it's like you get a year salary... For a decent job, but yeah. it's it's over. And all these bands were signing like, oh, we got a million dollar uh, deal, and it's like that million dollars isn't a million dollars paid to you to produce this music. This million dollars is like a bank account, mm-hmm. and in that million dollars, every recording session was 
taken away from that, was subtracted from that. Well, yeah. Every promo, every it's video. All, it's, all those numbers are inflated. Just like if you go to the doctor and you look at your bill, it's like $25 for an aspirin. Yeah, and the little paper cup because that the aspirin comes too. in. It's like they have this idiot yeah. band in there that doesn't know anything. It was a really... And the suit is like they're telling them everything they want to hear. Yeah. And then the other thing is, is what you don't know, when they're like in the studio... And they feel all special because there's like, oh, man, there's like a spread and there's a ton of beer in the fridge. And they there's trick all this. you, yeah. It's like you, you're paying for all of this. <laughs> yeah. It's not – nothing is free, yeah. you know. And even when those guys, when the people can get those things for free, they still – all they have to do is have their accountants say – Tell them it was this much, this much. And then where does that money go? But into those suit pockets, you know. Yeah, um, and it's it's – it's sad because it took the record industry to completely combust upon itself to That's get all I... these new kids to realize that. So now they're in much better positions to earn, but we don't have the same music as back then. Exactly. There's <laughs> nothing. But the, the, the other thing, I remember seeing a, a copy of Maximum Rock and Roll, and it had a whole genealogy tree of the subsidiary labels because this is also preceding like because that happened in like the 90s early 90s early to mid 90s where it was like you saw like matador yeah but then if you look it's like that's from a parent company right, right, right. it basically broke down how there's really there was really only like four i was like i think it was like epic universal warner brothers whatever and then it just kept going down, and the subsidiary labels were just made to look like, like, oh, well, this is the way we can sign this band because there's all this backlash going on. So some kid that's out there is going to, we're going to market this album to that kid. If that kid saw Epic on that label, and if it was in the wrong store, they ain't going to buy it. But if they went to their local indie record store and it's on Caroline or Matador or yeah. whatever, they're going to buy it. So it's like the Goliath is still getting paid. And one of the weirdest... And there was a ton of them. One of the weirdest pairings before, because this was before this happened, was um, Big Star on Stax. Mm -hmm. Like, has that band on Stax Records? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like, that was... That's like the a good example of that. Like you have the stacks, which is like the soul. Mm -hmm. What's well, like Slayer on Def Jam? How does that make sense? Well, when we get to that, so mm -hmm. I have a whole backstory on the whole yeah. Def but Jam thing. The Big Star probably has something. I mean, it was also because weren't they from Memphis? They were. They were. They had a. They had a tie-in, but no music like Big Star was oh, on. No. Of course not. That label, you know, they would have been more suited to like whatever the Beach Boys were on, or mm -hmm. or you know. The association, whatever, what was the band he Alex Chilton came from? Was it the the box tops? The box tops, yeah. The letter, the song, the letter. Yeah, yeah. Um, but thinking about like Napster, it's like that's what the record industry gets because they were trying to fool everybody. They've already been fooling everybody for years and ripping everybody off and robbing and stealing, and then doing it like wolves in sheep's clothing. Where oh well, now let's just make these fake labels that will appeal to college radio because, you know, hey, everyone's listening to R.E.M. Yeah. You know, everyone's listening to The Replacements and Husker Du and 
Sonic Youth, um, all these, you know, alternative things. So then basically when the public outsmarted them, then they got all upset right. with, with the advent of Napster, where it's like people have been doing that from the get-go, have been taping records. And, you know, it's like they're always, like, so concerned about not losing a penny because they're that tells you right there that it's not even about music you know and it's just a it's a vehicle to make money to get music out to the public but they could care less about they're just thinking about the commodity and yeah. when the artists start turning into that that's when it sucks because it's like you know what we don't i don't want to hear kanye west uh you know publicly denouncing anything it's like you know what write a book about that shit yeah but when you're in public all you should be doing is singing your fucking songs <laughs> and being an artist because that's all your connection to the public should be or if you want to be you know this this force or whatever then you know what change it do yeah you ha you guys all have that power you don't have to be like a jay-z that's gonna just sit there and yeah and see they don't even see that their own what they're what they're doing like jay-z you know he he created an ex instead of getting together with these musicians and demanding the you know the equal pay rate across the board or making sure that they got the right amount of money for all these streams because that's what people are getting paid on now mm -hmm. streams um, yeah, and you have to have a ton of them. Now, they were like, oh, well, just, we'll just create our own and make money off all these people. It's like you're doing the exact same thing mm -hmm. that you were fighting in the first place. Because you're not even about the people And anymore. the content is what suffers. I think the biggest thing, like, I, like the Napster thing is twofold for me, is it disrupted everything and it made things wide open and, you know, accessibility. But the thing that suffers the most is is the quality of music and the quality that people care that it comes out on. Like, mm -hmm. I think it was iTunes that first initiated the standard bit rate for the MP3. Because mm -hmm. everyone, like, some of these MP3s when Napster first came out, it oh, sounded like you recorded it in a tin like a can. Boom box or something. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's like, this isn't the way that it even sounded on low-quality cassette tape. Like, yeah. this sounds like crap. Well, it was like the Wild West, that's why. Or, like, you know what? Like, if you left an answering... If you left a song on an answering machine, <laughs> and you mm -hmm. put that tape in your car, like the Singles movie, where he's mm -hmm. writing that song, it's so funny. Um, but, yeah, and like, you know, Napster's a huge... I think Metallica's tagged with the Napster thing because of Lars Ulrich. Yeah, and that was the... I, I don't think the rest of the band agreed a bit. Or maybe they just were like, we don't care. You go out there and talk about it. That and, was worse than them cutting their hair. Yeah. I mean, I don't give a fuck if they cut their hair. I, I just... it It's... Like, I couldn't... If they were all... If they wore dresses and changed the way they looked, I didn't care. If they made the music in this vein. Like, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like, they've... They didn't fall off completely after this record. This was like just one of those ones where it's like, it's going to go down as a record to own. I don't care if you listen to punk rock, new, whatever the new version of punk rock is, or alternative only music, unless you listen to nothing but country, like... This is something that you... Or like r and I don't think any R&B fans are going to ever listen to Metallica. There, but, you on know, a wide scale. But you know what's funny? I think Metallica did attract a lot of rappers. 
I think they're one of the few bands. I'm not talking about rappers because I mean rappers. Oh, R and B, R and B. Yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the fans. Gotcha, gotcha. There's gotcha, gonna gotcha. be some fans that are out there at a nightclub. They're they're not gonna want to hear that. Right, right. right. Yeah, you're not gonna. Wanna they hear might that. know about it because it's a household yeah. name, like you know. And plus, I'm sure I don't watch it, but they were probably in some fashion on The Simpsons, and anything that's on The Simpsons is widely oh, accepted I'm sure they were. as I'm sure pop they were. cultural, yeah. you know. Iconoclast. But I'm sure they were. But yeah, I think that this that, this particular record is is a must. Not just a must listen. This is like the one that I have to have in my in my collection. And even though Kill 'em All is the go to one, and you know it's I'm talking about this is a must own and like I don't even know where my copy is. <laughs> like Really? Yeah, I I thought I saw it. I was going through my records the other day because I wanted to dust it off and listen to it. And I only found I found everything but this one. I even found the the five song EP. I found a, a twelve inch single of "Am I Evil." I found uh, "Kill 'Em All" and "Red Lighting," and I can't find this record. So I that's weird. Fucking go buy it. it. Sucks. But that's probably why too. It's good in hindsight for bands that never had to get so big, but were big enough to keep to have to be. To exist, like like Slayer, like Slayer, never got to the level of Metallica, even though they're they're part of the big four, which is Anthrax, Metallica, Megadeth, and Slayer. But you know what I mean, like because they didn't have that like crossover. Yeah. But they're still successful. They're still big. But they still like get to be Slayer and not have to like change or or not change. Like they. Yeah. And they're still, they could still sell out and they could still make records, you know. Same thing with like Iron Maiden, Judas Priest. Like they got not, they got big enough where they were internationally known and they're going to go down as legends, but they didn't have to deal with that white hot spotlight in the sense of like. Didn't Iron Maiden get their own plane? Like the Guns N' Roses. And Bruce Dickinson as the pilot. He's a pilot. But he's like, he pilots their Yeah, he flies tour around plane. on tour. I would never do that. <laughs> If I was just in the band, it's like, oh, yeah, start Singer's going to fly. Hey, our like, Singer's no. the pilot. That's all like, what's his name? Remember um, Matt Field flying uh, little commercial flights? Yeah, he's a, he's a professional pilot. I'd never now. get in a plane with him. I wouldn't get, nah. I, I mean, he's done a few flights now. I want to learn how to fly a plane. He's done some flights um, on the ground. I was, because you brought the, the, what did you say, the four? The, the big four. The big four, is that what they're called? Because they had that concert. And they, they have were, it all the time now. The they were four. playing it at like movie theaters. Like you can you can watch it live in a movie it's theater. It's Anthrax, Megadeth. Yeah, and so going Talbot back to Slayer. those four, so Peace Cells, Rain and Blood, Master of Puppets, and I think it's Among the Living that came out all within a year of each other. Anthrax is the only one that came out the year after. Mm-hmm. Well, and they like, put out Fistful of Metal, but... But I'm saying for the... To, to, to gain that big four inclusion... It was all between 86 and 87 or whatever. Whatever happened in that year. Uh, this one, Rain and Blood and this one are the standouts. Peace Cells is mm-hmm. good. The one and the thing that it doesn't hold up, and I used to have it, Among the Living, it does not hold up. Like, I can't listen to it now. Yeah. I can, go, I can even go back and listen to Peace Cells. Rain and Blood, I'll listen to any day of the week, you know, any morning. It's like one of my favorite records of all time. Yeah. This one, great record. Every song is on it. You know, this one's a lot more... It's kind of like Join the Army by Suicide Tendencies where the, you don't really want to go back and listen to that. No, nah, I only have the first one. Um, but the you Among... You used to have that one. 
What? Join the Join Army? The Army. No, I know, but I'm saying I only listened to the first one. That's uh, what I'm saying. It's like yeah. you don't... But something about Among the Living, and I, I remember it was a character from a book. I, th- I want to say it was a Stephen King book, but that was the theme of that record. It was like they were starting to get... You know, they were starting to take these uh, uh, prog rock kind of themes and these other heavy metal, heavy bands from, the, you know, that like had like literary themes and stuff like that. And like I go back and listen to it, I'm like, I think it's caught in a mosh. And I remember like really liking some of these songs. Went back to listen to it and it's like unlistenable. <laughs> like it just, it just doesn't hold up to what these guys are. This album still holds up. Mm-hmm. Like, you know. Well, that's, that's why it, that's that's why it had that appeal, and that's why they got bigger than the other bands. Like they just had the right, yeah, chemical um, composition between the four members and the songs, and the way the album was produced and packaged and promoted. Like it takes, you know, it takes a lot of different components, um, and then the time. Yeah, that's the other thing. The time, like you know. Thinking about what was going on in punk rock right here, too, this is like, I want to say it was kind of along the same time as, like, Crossover, like, when all the bands were, like, like DRI. DRI's Crossover, crossover album, yeah. Where it was, like, bands, and it was just so weird because there was all these little, like, music was so compartmentalized. It was, like, you either a new waver or you're a punk rocker. It wasn't like, oh, you're street punk or you're a, you're a goth punk. It was just you're punk rock. Yeah. Like, you could, be, you could be listening to The Cure and be a punk rocker. That doesn't necessarily make you a new wave person. Right. But I remember when Crossover happened, it was like, and if you think about it, musically, it wasn't really that much different. But just having the connotation of like, oh, that's metal? Like, no. Yeah. Punk rockers don't get along with Hessians. And then that's, then when, you, that's when you have like a motorhead sneak in, and that's kind of like... Uh, a um, a bridge where right. punk rockers will listen to Motorhead and metalheads will see like a punk rocker with the Motorhead patch and be like, okay, well, I'm not going to kick his ass. Um, <laughs> but um, it's probably around the same time with... Probably, yeah. And this I, like I think the DRI even played with some of those bands. Corrosion you know, like, of Conformity yeah, be like the, and the beginning of the... I don't know if it's the beginning of it, but like that New York, like Gnostic Front and... Oh, that New York hardcore? Murphy's Law, Cro-Mags, and yeah, like that was happening around the same time, I think, too. Mm -hmm. And it's like that hardcore was like the the little side of this, of these big four ones. Like they didn't have... There was something about the quality of the sound, like that just, like the energy was awesome. But the quality of the sound, the way they were able to record some of these things, because it didn't, because like, even if you go back to like the first Bad Brains record, that thing just kicks ass on so many records. And they didn't do a lot to record that. I think I, I'm pretty sure it was one mic. You know, it's just the energy of those guys playing yeah, that was playing. captured. And, you know, you have like an agnostic front record or, so, or I can't remember this other one I used to listen to. And it's like attitude adjustment. They were trying to get like this kind of sound, but they just couldn't do it. Yeah. You know, and I think that's what the feat was here was the crafting of the of capturing the sound itself. Well a lot of those <clears> like <throat> combat core records too, like remember that label? Yeah. They put out a bunch of stuff and there was like a certain sound to that too. It was just like really tinny drums and the I don't know, it was just bad. Like 
I think even uh, it's like thin and weak. It turned into this thing where even like Pantera. I remember Vinnie Paul, the drummer, did this thing where he would glue pennies to his bass drum heads where the beater was going to hit it, and he would use wooden beaters. So it was like that doesn't even sound like a drum anymore. Mm. You know, it's like then it turned into this whole like. But this album, like all the instruments, sound. Like they would live. Yeah. You know, and I think when records, like it was around this time where records went a different way, where they just started to sound too overproduced. But I think, I think you're right. I think it was the people that were trying to figure out how to create these sounds and just couldn't do it. Yeah. They just failed. You know, they just, but that, and that comes down a lot to, and you hear playing, you hear like the new metal. And like the corn, you know, like that new metal, and they they created a sound. They they were able to capture the sound that they were creating um, properly. Like as far as like just the capturing of the sound, they actually did. They actually did a good job because, but not with the songwriting. (laughs) Well, yeah, not judging the song craft. I'm talking about just the way that. Like they were able to achieve that, and then they spawned that whole genre. Like you know, like you were saying that that uh, that that band that the what's it called the uh, System of a Down. Oh God, that was more that was more like Metallica's fault. But I feel like System of a Down is more of Corn's fault. Mm-hmm. Like you know, like maybe System of Down was trying to play Metallica style songs, but because Corn was able to capture the gap. that sound mm-hmm. and put it on record, that's that's whose fault. Yeah, it and that's is. not always good. Just like yeah. you brought up Big Star <laughs> earlier, like their records sonically sound great, but like to me, they're just like soulless. Where it's like they're not even like I don't get it. I, I understand why that band was like critically acclaimed because. Critics don't know shit. You know, well, at the that, same time, they were they were ta- they were talking shit about Led Zeppelin. Yeah, you know, and I, that's Led Zeppelin. I'm not I'm not just saying we'll we'll just look at the facts. It's like I love Led Zeppelin. Like you know, and I think, I think a lot the, of people do. I think the big star appeal is the that alternative, like that bedroom pop alternative. Like that's the the groundwork for that kind of stuff. I just think there's people that you know. did it way better. And I think the only reason, like basically if that 70s show never existed, people wouldn't even still know who that band was. Like really? Like was, or oh, they the theme that song? influential? The theme song? That, yeah. Like yeah. give me a break. Like, but like, whatever. Yeah. I like some of those. Um, um, what would you rate this album? It's a 10. That's hands down a 10. Just because of the, the ability to capture everything correctly like i don't think there's i don't think there's a weak point in here i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't like want to fix anything on this i think like they captured it you know you couldn't do any better job of capturing what mm-hmm. they did in this in this eight song did you say eight songs eight songs eight yeah. songs and and like i said before i never even heard this on cd I've only listened to it on vinyl, or, on vinyl or on streaming services. And it's like, that's, a, you know, a lot, a lot of the stuff that came out during this time, the CDs sounded better than the vinyl for some weird reason. Like but not these. The mastering or whatever the... That's something to be said about the mastering of like this record and like Rain and Blood where 
they just pop. And another album that this makes me think of, even though it's different, is um, Damage by Black Flag. If oh, you yeah. drop the needle on any of these of those three records, Damage by Black Flag, Rain and Blood by Slayer, Master Puppets by Metallica, it's like the music is like... I mean, it is electricity, but I'm, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like almost like you can feel that shooting through those grooves and it's like, it's yeah. jumping out where yeah, like they, the needle's almost just holding on for dear life. And it's coming across, everything's coming out of there. Like, it sounds amazing. Yeah. And like, if you took like a um, comparable record of the era, like if you took the Exodus Bonded by Blood and you transferred the master to whoever whoever mastered and pressed that one, mm-hmm. and you laid that one down. This album may not have had the impact that it had because it would have had that weak, thinned out sound to it. Well, you know? And the guy was Fleming Rasmussen. Fleming Rasmussen was in the Denmark. Yeah, but, but was, what? Like, what else did he produce? I actually didn't look into what he did. And I wonder what else was recorded in this. Like, why oh, did they choose that studio? Like, they're in Denmark. They went to with Denmark. This Danish dude. They went to Denmark because that's where, what's his name's from? Uh, Lars Ulrich. Yeah. So he just. But they still, they, they still had to have some kind of backstory with that studio or that dude. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the backstory was on how they found I don't him. think this was a thing where it was like, you know. Random. Ah, let's just go. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think this was. Um, but that'd be interesting. I wonder what that guy, what else he produced. But they definitely, you know, he could have been doing like Bobby Vale records. <laughs> could have. Um, but yeah, you know the the accomplishment that they did. Every song is any one of these songs holds up. I don't think there's a weak song. There's better. There's you know I have preferences. To some, but there's not a single weak song on here. I think it's 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 really hard to pinpoint, but it's it's like I think it's, on, it's, it's timeless too. Yeah, I think on some days, I think Damage Incorporated is like the one that I like. I'm like, oh, I want to hear something off Master Boats, and I want to hear because of the the pace and the speed of that mm-hmm. one. And then the other ones, like I remember what, a couple times, I'm like, I just want to hear Orion for some weird reason, mm-hmm. you know? It's just an instrumental, eight and a half minute instrumental. Uh, but yeah. Hands down, ten for me. Uh, can't can't think of you know not just because of the influence that it had, the impact that it had beyond the time that it came out for anything that came out afterwards, but the album that came right came out right before it. It it's like light years ahead of that one, mm-hmm. and it's even better than the one that came out after it. So yeah. that's the thing for me. It's like it's the quintessential you know thing for this band like the mark that they made is this one i'd have to give it a nine only because like the songs on kill em all i think like if kill em all basically sounded like this record just sonically yeah it would it would blow it away but that's just because of what i like to listen to now like i remember when when um what's it called peace of mind came out like I, I'd already loved Iron Maiden, number of the, and I remember we got that like when it was new. I think that came out in '85. Number of the Beast. Um, no. Oh, Peace of, of Mind. Yeah. But like, Number of the Beast is already like, like their hits on it, like Run to the Hills. That's just a that's just a song. It's a pop yeah. song. Um, Invaders, uh, Twenty Two Acacia Avenue. 
uh, Children of the Damned. It had some little bit longer songs where it was like kind of getting proggy. The first two albums, which I wasn't that familiar with at the time, those are just like punk rock records. Different singer, it's with Paul Diano. But Peace of Mind, I remember loving that record. And Flight of the Icarus is a long song. Revelations, long song. It's almost like... Even the Trooper is long. Like Power yeah. Slave is like, you know, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. It's like yeah. 13 minutes. But the first song, Where Eagles Dare, it's like there's, there were just these big pieces and gorgeous, like amazing drumming, gorgeous guitar work. That's what makes me think of like Master Puppets, where it's it's these compositions. But now, because I don't really go back and listen to too much like metal, like every once in a while, if I want to hear something, I'll listen to the same couple handful of songs by like Merciful Fate because it's it does that thing for me. Yeah. But I would want to go listen to Kill 'Em All because those are just songs with amazing riffs and just energy. This one, like, I'm not saying it's not great, but if it gets a little too proggy, like, because I love prog too, but then I'm going to want to just listen to, to a prog, like, prog. like I'm going to want to listen to Genesis or Caravan or something. Um, so I would give it a nine, but still, it's. I think it has that quality of the... Like that watermark, like it, it's it's up there with the watermark that has been set in my mind with almost every other record we've done. The one that I think doesn't fit into everything we've done so far so much is kind of the clash looking back. Um, mm. Not for any in particular reason. Uh, if we would have did London Calling, maybe that would have been a little different because that's, you know, that's the yeah. one that's going to. But whatever, it doesn't matter. I think this one's still... Did it's you just know, as influential. Did it you know that uh, that Nico is it Nico or Nico, Nico McBrain was in the Pat Travers band? Mm-mm. I don't know why I was watching something and I saw that and I was like, I was like, the drummer from Iron Maiden was in Pat Travers band. You know, he used to be the the Eddie. He was like a part of their road crew and he used to dress up like Eddie on stage. The drummer. Uh-huh. Oh, I didn't know and that. And when Clive Burr, I don't know why he left, but that's why that's why he got the job. Oh, I didn't know that. That's funny. But Eddie, and he's the drummer, and he was in Pat Travers' band. Of yeah, all the bands. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, ten and a nine. It's it's a it's if you've ne- I mean, I can't even imagine somebody n- having never heard one of these songs. Like I can because they had bigger albums. But I mean, like exposed to it, like there's a scene in uh, old school that uses Master of Puppets, and mm-hmm. I'm wondering what the hell they had to pay to put that in the movie. But you know what I mean? There's just like, like not being exposed to it. You knew who Metallica was. I think there's some kids too that probably maybe they think the classic is like and Justice for All because that was a much bigger album. And it was, but yeah. I bet you anything, if they listen to this, it would be like, whoa. Yeah, if you've never heard this, you need to go listen to this. This is such a great album. Um, but it's long for eight songs. <laughs> it's a good it's a good hour. Yeah, I'm going to listen to it again. Hour I'll probably listen to it in the next couple of days because I haven't heard it forever. The one that's the, you know which one's like really interesting? 
and I don't think I never skipped it because it was on album. Um, is the thing that should not be. It's a really interesting song. Um, like the sound that, like the opening sound of his you guitar. Know what that song's about? It's, it's about Napster. It, they had a premonition. Yeah. No, it's about and Lars Ulrich. What's his wrote name? It. It's about Cthulhu or whatever. He wrote that. it in Denmark. <laughs> he wrote it an angry letter. The yeah. thing that should not be is Napster. That should have been like Napster's it. theme. I like that's that's one of those bands. Like I like Metallica, but I don't like their politics with that. Well, I don't even. I don't know if he represents the band. I think he does. You think he does? You think they're? You think, think they're all in like agreement? The guy. Uh, I think he's like the one in charge. But I'm saying is like, do you think what that they all agree? Grapefruit head. He's like three foot five. Oh. He's like a drum pick. I mean, a drumstick. A drum pick. <laughs> it's a drumstick. <laughs> all right. All right. Um, see you next time. Or we won't see you, but you can hear us next time. Yeah, download this from Napster. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be coming out on Napster. Thank <laughs> you.